there are a couple words that strike terror into the heart of people. Two of those words are vehicle maintenance. Do you ever notice how hard it is to keep cars the way they're supposed to be? Um, I know my father was a stickler for maintaining your car properly. And he would always drill into my heart and mind, and when he'd see me, have, he'd say, hi, how you doing? Have you checked your oil? Uh, always, just making sure, because he worked for the refinery and mobile research labs, and he was with cars all the time and saw how they broke down. And I'm sure all of you maintain your cars perfectly, and you don't ever have issues. Now, I know I'm not real good at that, and I'm always thinking, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know I haven't been doing very well with this, and I will say the same thing to my children. Have you checked your oil? Have you checked your oil? It's kind of like a legacy thing. It's not because I do it so well. It's just that I know that's what dads are supposed to say. And, and in that whole vehicle maintenance thing, I'm sure you all have your snow tires on. Is that right? Yes? No? Maybe? You know, things that you do to keep running properly. I'm hoping soon that Claude Green gets a credit card with frequent flyer miles. Because uh, on some of our cars, we could get some flights right now with the, you know, the path going back and forth to his house. Y you have to maintain a car. There's certain things that you do to keep it running. Our hearts are no different. There are certain things that, if neglected, will send our hearts into ruin. God has given us the maintenance schedule, the tools, the things that keep us in his presence, things that keep us uh, from falling apart. And those are the things that we're looking at in the spiritual disciplines. Those things that God says, if your heart is falling apart, it's probably because one or more of these things you're not doing. And if you do them, you bring your heart before me. You empty yourself of all the entanglements, all the things that are vying for your attention, and you can hear me, and I can change you. But without those disciplines, we're like the car that never changes the oil, never checks the fluids, never changes the tires. It's only a matter of time before we are stuck on the side of the road. And that invitation that Christ gives us, we've said it every week and we're going to continue to say it, is that invitation to get into his yoke, to become his partner in life's journey. Life is too difficult. Life is too hard to go it on your own. I don't care if you think you're wise, you think you're clever, that you have all the abilities, you do not. In order for this life to be done the way God designed it to be done, we need his yoke. And that yoke that he's invited into, as he has said himself, you will find rest for your souls. His yoke is kind and gracious. And that's what we're after, the life that is lived by his grace. Not by my wisdom, not by my cunning, not by my charming personality, any of those things. It's God and God alone is our source. So we've been looking at the spiritual disciplines, and the first big bunch have been the disciplines of abstinence. And that means to refrain voluntarily and temporarily from normal human needs to disentangle ourselves from their claim on us. 
And what we're going to look at today is in that same uh, line of thought, to disentangle our hearts and minds from things that would lay claim on us. We've looked at solitude, and you have that in your notes. And by the way, if you have your paper notes, you can also get them online now. So if you go to our website, you can open up the same notes that are on the paper. You can have them in front of you if you want to do that. Solitude. We've looked at silence and fasting. And fasting in particular last week, we've looked at a couple things that we do and what fasting can accomplish for us. And in fasting, we fast by way of preparation of our hearts. Fasting is also done for a passion of intercession or of great need. And fasting simply because of the joy of the Lord entering into the presence of the bridegroom. And we said that fasting is feasting. It's not just the absence of food, but it's the presence of God. Uh, confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. Today, it's frugality. Frugality, not a word that we use very often. And as we look at that, I want us to keep in mind the purpose behind being frugal is not to save money, okay? It's actually to disentangle ourselves from the hold that money and or things can have on us. So when we talk about frugality, I want to get a couple notions out of the way. First of all, frugality is not a contest between Chuck and Warren, okay? I had to get that right out of the way, you know. It's not a contest between them to see who can have the lowest electric bill, who can be the cheapest, you know. It's, I'm, I'm sorry, did I say cheap? Who can be the most frugal, okay? That's why they're on different sides of the auditorium here, you know. It's like everybody in the middle has to be the, the judge and jury here. It, it, it's not about... <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't even get Chuck's permission. Warren said I could say whatever I wanted about him. Anyway, it's not about that. It's not about a product of our nationality. Some of us have nationalities that tend to be more frugal, or at least that's the stereotype. Well, it's not about that kind of way of saving money. It's not an issue of stewardship. It's different than that. Stewardship is what you are by living in this world. You're either going to be a faithful or an unfaithful one. Stewardship is the entrustment of things <clears throat> to people. We've been entrusted with the Word of God, with creation, with so many gifts. We've been entrusted with our own life. We are stewards. We're either faithful or unfaithful. Frugality is something we enter into by choice to disentangle ourselves from the things that could entangle us. So when we look at frugality, the definition, and we ended with this last week, it's abstaining from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or hunger for status, glamour, or luxury. To disentangle ourselves. Uh, we are quite a materialistic society. We love things. We love to have things. We love to talk about things. We love to do that all the time. And, and the more we get, I'm sure all of us get to a certain place where we're satisfied with things. The problem is with things, the more you get, if you're looking to them alone, the more dissatisfied you'll get. I think it was J.P. Getty was once asked, one of the richest men who lived, how much money does it take for you to be happy? And his 
response, some of you might know it, a little bit more. It kind of reminds me of uh, Ariel in Little Mermaid. You know that song that she thinks, sings with everything? She says, sure, she's got everything. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's-its and what's-its galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I know, you guys sing wonderfully. That's awesome. You see, things have a way of entangling our hearts, but they can't satisfy our hearts. So frugality, to be understood correctly, is a choice that I make not to pursue certain things that entangle me, to help me live in a way that is completely tangled with God. Now, frugality can mask a couple things in our lives. One, it can mask greed. I am frugal because I want to spend it all on me. So I'm not going to spend money on other things so I can get the things that I really want. I won't be wasteful. So there's a greedy part of frugality, and that's not what we're talking about either. There's some who are frugal because they're very proudful. What? Give the money that I earned to somebody who didn't earn it? I earned this money. I'm keeping this money. That's not frugality in the sense that we're talking about. Another place, another kind of frugality can mask misplaced security. Those that look at the bank account, and if the bank account or the stocks are performing or the IRA or the retirement fund's performing well, I feel safe. But as soon as the market goes down, ah, what am I going to do? You know, my retirement's evaporating. And and it's a misplaced security. Rather than knowing there's an ever-loving God watching out for me, I look to money as the thing that will bail me out, the thing that will keep me going, the thing that I have it, and as long as I have it, I'm secure. But if I were to lose everything, I would come unglued. Because money is the security. So we want to look at frugality as a discipline that is focused on disentangling my heart to the material universe that we live in. And as we do it, we are prime targets for entanglement with these. And we want to ask the question is, who, me, wealthy? And if I were to ask most of you today, are you rich? Say, no way, I'm not rich. And one of the reasons that we are primed for being entangled in this area is because our view of reality and our own situation is often skewed. Now, I'm going to go through different generations here, but they asked the boomers, what does it take for a person to be wealthy? How many boomers are here? Okay, all right, we're a dying breed. Anyway... Boomer said it takes $2.63 million to be rich. That was what the general boomer response was. So let's go to Generation X. They said it takes $2.53 million. So it's getting cheaper now. It's getting easier to become rich. How about those millennials? What do you think? Those millennials, $1.94 million to be rich. Well, there's a new generation out there, and you might not know who you are even yet, 
Generation Z, I think if you were born in 95 to 97, they say it's after that. Depends on who you look at. They said $1.4 million to be considered rich. I wonder, if we looked at the globe, the whole world, do these figures make sense? Is that what wealthy is? So there was a survey taken where most Americans placed themselves in the whole world. They said, we're probably about 32% on the chain of wealth. So that there's, you know, 32% people make more, but then there's a good bit that, that make less than your typical American. Do you think that's real? In fact, reality, if you made $32,000 last year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Like, really? That's astounding. And they took that same survey and they did other things asking, what do you think, typical American, that the global median income is? The answer, oh, $20,000 is what Americans said. Reality, $2,100 is the global median income. How many of us struggle because we have too much stuff? Where am I gonna put it all? How many of us spend a great deal of time organizing our stuff? Jeff Holm is the only one that doesn't because his is all organized. If you go into his garage, it's sickening. Everything's in its place. I'm sorry, that just came to my mind. We, but we spend all this time organizing and like, oh, I got to buy more totes. Why do you buy totes? I got to put my stuff in it. And we have barns and sheds and things. We have stuff that clutters and is all over the place. How many of us know of somebody it's hard to buy for them at Christmas time because they've got everything. They have so much. I don't know. So you wind up buying something that they probably don't need and won't like just so it's a Christmas present. We are blessed people. We have more than we think we do. We are in an age of instant gratification, where if we want it, we want it now, and we want to spend the money. And that's why a lot of America has credit card debt. I'm not looking for a raise of hands here, but how many of us have ever been in trouble because of credit cards? Nationwide, the average household carries $6,829 of credit card debt. And that's not even the real picture. The bigger picture is, because people who don't have debt kind of bring that number down, of those with credit card debt, over 50% of them have over $15,000 in credit card debt. And probably most of those purchases weren't emergencies. They were things that I wanted I wanted them now. And, you know, my kids used to think credit cards meant it was free. So, Dad, just use your credit card because it's free. No, it's always there. It's always something that you will have to pay. See, we are blessed. Many of us, most of us might be in that top 1%. We have a lot. But we're prime targets to become entangled with it because our our. First off, our, our perspective of reality is skewed. And we live in a generation that compares itself with each other. Social media just accentuates that. And I see what somebody else has, 
And instead of saying, wow, that's awesome that you have that, one of two things happens. Either I want it, or I'm mad that you have it, and I really, really wish it was mine. You see, that's the entanglement. It's the covetousness. It's the greed. And that's what we're looking at this morning, where frugality comes in and says, I will not purchase this simply because I can. And I won't purchase it because it's going to control me. I need to know that I'm disentangled from having things being my God or coming before the Lord. You see, having things, not sin. Things, having you, that's sin. And that's what frugality does. Disentangles our hearts. So as we look at it, we, we have to say in a lot of ways, we have a tangled mind. And sometimes our minds are tangled and we don't even know it because we live in a world with tangled minds. So if I take my mind and put it next to somebody else's, I'm doing okay. We're both a mess. I'm just not as much of a mess as they are. But when we come before the Lord and he looks at our heart and mind, he sees a lot of threads that need to be pulled. And that's when the phrase in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, when it says to present your bodies a living sacrifice, that's when you bring it to the Lord, no strings attached, and you say, Lord, you disentangle me. You get into the motives and the thoughts of my heart. You show me how I really, really am. And what we're talking about is the spiritual disciplines that God says, I'm giving these to you so that I can disentangle your brain. So I can make you see things the way that I see them. So that then grace can change your heart and mind. The word entangled is a, a big deal uh, when it comes to these things. Spiritual disciplines take us to the throne of grace. Take us to the presence of the Lord at any time. And get us into the place where our minds can be unshackled from the things that hold us. We are prime targets for having entangled minds. And a verse we've looked at a couple times over the past week, it says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The word entangled means to inweave, to be involved in, ensnared. It's like the person getting caught in a cobweb. And all of these things just wrap around them. And the harder they try on their own, the more wrapped up in it they get. It's used, this word entangle is the same word of the crown that was on Jesus' head where they, they intertwined or they twisted the thorns together to fashion the crown. This particular word is used in a couple different ways. It, it, this particular passage, it's a passive tense. And it has the idea to entwine one's hand in another's clothes so as to hold him. So in other words, the things that would entangle us, the things of this world. It pictures somebody where they go up to somebody and they, they grab them by their collars and they get their hands into them and they're holding them. And that's what the ensnaring process is. It's where I get involved in the passion of things, of money, the pursuit of stuff, and it grabs a hold of me and it holds me by the shirt collar and doesn't let me go. And then I really can't do much profitable when somebody's got me by the collar and won't let go. 
That's what the poison of materialism does. When I keep all that, and I just want money, and I want things, and I don't even have to be rich to be uh, prone to this problem, and we're going to look at that in a moment. The sense, basically, in Scripture of this particular word is to be or become involved in some task or role to the point that it interferes with other activities, conceived of as being or becoming intertwined and aligned to the point of immobility. In other words, I've got all these cords all about me in this world, and they entangle me so much that I have no profitability for the kingdom of God. Why? Because I'm all wrapped up in the kingdom of this world. These things that I love so much have made me ineffective for the cause of Jesus Christ. False teachers in 2 Peter were entangled by this world. And the scripture says about them, they promise them freedom. These are the false teachers that, that Peter's talking about. And, and, and they're teaching and promising freedom to the people that they're speaking to. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the uh, defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Something has occupied these people. And that phrase, maybe you recognize it from another place in Scripture when it says the last state has become worse for them than the first. It's used in the book of, um, where is it used? Well, Matthew chapter 12 and Luke 11. When Jesus is talking about demons that were in somebody and that demon leaves and goes away, but eventually comes back and finds, you know what? Nothing's replaced me. God hasn't moved in. I still see an empty heart. So it says seven more demons come in, and the latter state of that person is worse than the first. See, our hearts need to be occupied by something. It will either be God in his kingdom, or it will be Satan. And if we get to a point, sometimes our emotions get... Um, convicted and we think oh you know what I really want to change but we never fully give ourselves to the Lord we just kind of dabble around the outside and we don't fill him the worst what can happen is that the latter state is worse than the first it's better to not have known the way of God the scriptures say than to have known it understood it and turned your back on it you see our hearts need a focus it we need a kingdom and you see, there's a problem with an entangled heart. An entangled heart seems to follow and do the same thing that it's always done. You think in life when we fail, we learn from our lessons. We think that we would somehow get smarter and wiser. And when we hit a dead end and it's not going anywhere, we'd say, oh, this isn't a good way to live. I shouldn't live this way anymore. And that we would turn and change. But how many times do we ourselves or know somebody who keeps hitting the same dead end over and over again, banging our heads? And the scripture goes on to say, after talking about those false teachers, that what the true proverb says has happened to them, 
As the dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to its folly. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, or the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. You see, when our hearts are tangled in materialism, when we see the emptiness of that, we don't necessarily just change and go the other way. We'll just try to get more, try to get more. And we're entangled. And I love this quote, God didn't give you the strength to get back up so you can run back to the same thing that knocked you down. God's grace at work in us to disentangle us from the things that claim our hearts for the materialistic way that, that um, our hearts can be prone to. You see, there's a, quite a danger in the things and money and those things that surround us. And the danger is seen here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced, them, pierced themselves with many tangs. That word plunge could literally be translated drowned, to drag you to the bottom. You see, when our hearts are captivated by things, the things we have or the things we don't have, it really doesn't matter. Our heart is being pulled down to the very bottom because the kingdom that those things represent are temporary. They're not able to satisfy, yet we can pour ourselves into it and find our hearts captivated by them. And it's funny, some people will say that money is the root of all evil. And that's not really the right translation. It's a root of all kinds of evil. And I wonder if you took 60 seconds, and we won't do it right now, but if you were just to write down all the troubles, all of the problems that come about because the love of money, I wonder how long it would take you to come up with a pretty good list of all the problems that can come across. I tried it myself and I thought, okay, I'm just going to, what, what are some of the evils that come about by being so materialistic? And I just came up with self-righteous, callous, greedy, covetous, dishonest, domineering, self-centered, disconnected from others, worried, discontentment, unhappiness. And you could list, go on and on and on. I used to work in construction at some very, very, very wealthy homes. And some of them, and most of them, were some of the unhappiest places because there was fear, there was worry, there was fighting. There, there was not peace, although all the things were in place that the world says should bring you peace, should bring you happiness, but those things can never, ever deliver. There's quite a danger, but there's a goal in frugality, in not buying something simply because I can. There's a goal behind all of that. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't, cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. There's a mouthful there. You see, we do live in a generation where people feel entitled. And I deserve for people to give me things. It says, you brought nothing into this world, 
That kind of knocks that one right out of the ballpark. I'm not entitled to anything. If I have anything in this world, it is because of grace. God has given it to me. The breath that you're breathing right now, that's not yours. It's a gift. The bodies that we have, you didn't make it yourself. It's a gift. God has given us everything. But you find out how we view those things, take some of those away. And all of a sudden, ah, I've lost my, I don't have my, and whatever it is. It's like, what do you mean my? You don't own anything. Nothing belongs to any of us. It is a gift from God in a stewardship. We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of this world. There are no security in things. There's no eternal value in the stuff. You can't take it with you. No entitlement, no lasting quality, no security. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. That's where it really gets down to the heart of the matter. What does it take for me to feel content? Am I content with what I have right now, just the way I have it? Or are we always looking to somewhere only if I had that? Then life would be better. Only if I had more of. And I get to that point, life will be good all of a sudden. And that if only could come. And it may or may not. But if it came, life all of a sudden won't be great because of the achievement of a certain thing. You see, grace is the source of contentment. And if I am not schooled by the grace of God, realizing my undeservedness of anything, if that grace doesn't school me, I will be discontented. I will be completely discontented. When it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, it almost sounds like there's two kinds of godliness going on here. I could be godly and not content, or I could be godly with contentment. That's not how the verse is really translated. It means godliness, which is always accompanied by contentment, is of great gain. You see, to be godly and have our hearts disentangled from this materialistic world that we're in, in order for us to do that, we need grace. We need that discipline to bring ourselves before the throne of grace who God can say, I'm going to sort, I'm going to really show you how materialistic you are, how much you love your stuff. I had it really smack me in the face uh, how materialistic my heart can be when we traveled to Brazil some years ago. And right on one side of the street, affluence. The other side, some of the worst shacks that you could imagine. I'm like, oh my goodness, we are so blessed. We do have so much. True contentment has at its core the grace of God. And in that grace, it realizes in Christ, we've been given more than this world could ever give. We've been blessed with an inheritance greater than this world could ever give. The scriptures say in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Because of that great blessing from God, 
this other stuff, it's just like, like um, garland. It's not the substance of what life is. So I can be content realizing that in Christ, I have everything of importance, of value, that will last. Anything else will be a gift of grace, and it may come, it may not come, but it's not going to control my heart. It's not going to make me joyful or unjoyful. So when grace teaches us contentment, it, it shows itself in a couple ways. Number one, that satisfying joy, that's contentment, is mine even if my lot today never increases. I never get ahead. That's okay. Because godliness is accompanied by contentment. Satisfying joy is mine even if my lot constantly decreases. I lose it all. Satisfying joy can still be mine. Frugality is the discipline that says, I will not buy or I will not in indulge in these things simply because they make my life easier. Luxury, status, power, all of those things. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use my money so those things don't grab my heart. Satisfying joy is mine even if your lot increases and mine does not. That's when you start to look at your neighbor. And it's like, they're really getting ahead. And they're not really very godly. I don't get this. How come they seem to be doing so well? And I'm struggling, and I really want to know the Lord, and I'm trying, and they could care less. You see, satisfying joy that comes with godliness gives a contentment that doesn't matter what somebody else gets. That's okay. Because I've got it all in Christ anyway. Anything else would just be a gift of grace that may or may not come. Satisfying joy is mine, so I don't have to crave what you have. I don't have to. Because I've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. But you think about our own hearts when we see the good fortune of somebody else. Like, oh my goodness. Did you hear what they got? You know, this is my problem with power tools. Somebody gets a power tool I don't have. It's like, ah, oh, got to have that. Got to have it. You know, it's that, that keeping up or, oh, look at this, look at. When contentment is the lot that comes with godliness, I don't have to crave what somebody else wants. And here's the real hard part. I can genuinely rejoice in the blessings that somebody else gets. That's hard. To not have something inside of me that says, they, got, they don't deserve that. Oh, they got that. They got so much anyway. What do they need that for? Even though outwardly we may say, oh, I'm so happy for you. And inside we're thinking different. Like, Why not me? When's my turn come? I deserve to have that. No, you don't. We don't deserve anything. Anything, because God says, I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you a contentment beyond the stuff mark. And when you have it, you can be genuinely, genuinely happy with the progress and blessing that somebody else gets above and beyond you. Frugality. Being able to step back and be joyful because of what I've been given already. And anything else is a blessing 
not an expectation. Now I want to give a word of caution here, because whenever you preach a sermon like this, it's really easy for the person who has less to look at the person who has more and look at them and kind of judge them a little bit. Oh, look at them. They, they should be more frugal, you know. Look at what they've got. So they, I, think, I think they're materialistic because they have so much. And you get very judgmental at this point. And remember at the beginning, having things is not sin. Those things having you is sin. Romans 14 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Basically, I'm going to take a little pressure off you right now. I'm going to make your life easier. You are not God. I make you feel better. The person next to you is not God. And you say, oh, I got that down. That was easy. You see, we don't live or die or stand before each other. This materialistic mindset, whether I have it or not, this is before, between me and the Lord. Am I using my stuff to honor God? Or does the stuff hold my heart? You and the Lord, that's it. This is not a looking at somebody else. It's easy to say, oh, you know what? They're living in luxury and extravagance. They never should have bought that. If you're doing that right now, that's the temptation of your heart. That's, that's not the point. Is there is one judge, and it is God. And each of us stand before him on this issue. And we stand there alone, not before each other. Proverbs 4 that we read in our scripture reading. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, contentment would be nice. No. I am to be content, the scripture says. I know how to be brought low, do with nothing. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is often taken out of context. The real context of the secret is living in the presence of God. The spiritual disciplines bring us into his presence. He strengthens us, disentangles us from those things that grab our heart. And you know, it says I've learned the secret of being content. This is not natural. We always want what other people have. And we always want stuff for free. That's just the way it is. That's, that's our hearts. That's the way we are. We learn contentment. The idea of the spiritual disciplines, disciplines are how we learn. They are the tools, the training tools to teach us what godliness is all about. This is a very convicting sermon for all of us, I hope. We are so blessed in this country, and we have so much more than we think we do. God says, how much of your heart 
has been entangled by that. We're going to talk about sacrifice next week. That's kind of like stage two of frugality. Frugality is not saying, I'm not going to spend and get these things that are going to just bolster me up here. But what do I do with it then? If I do have extra, what does God expect? What does sacrifice really mean? And as we look into that, hopefully all of us are on a journey together down deep into our hearts. As we sang that song, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. I want my heart to be all about him. And I think a lot of us want the exact same thing, disentangled from stuff. Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you for the very breath that you give to us, the very life that we have. But Lord, it's not ours. It's on loan. The same goes with our family, with our friends, the possessions that we have. Father, you are the giver of all good things. Anything good comes down from the Father of lights. And Lord, help us to have a proper perspective, a proper stewardship of what you've given. And Lord, forgive us for that part of our heart that is covetous, greedy, or just desiring to have things above and beyond your kingdom. Lord, help us to make your kingdom, to seek you first and let you add any of the other stuff that you care to add. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.